Hi, I'm Abby, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to these Sepsis Research Feet Words of Sepsis podcasts. Over the course of eight episodes, we'll be talking to sepsis survivors and their families about their experiences of sepsis. Some of the stories you hear may be quite painful. Many are uplifting. They're stories of shock, fear, sometimes loss, often courage, but also of hope. Sepsis is a condition that still takes the lives of some 50,000 people in the UK every year. That's about five lives lost every hour. Our hope is that through these podcasts, many more people will become aware of sepsis and that some of the loss and suffering related to sepsis can be prevented as you increase your knowledge and the knowledge of others. So do please listen, share these words of sepsis and help to raise awareness and save lives. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Farah, a previously fit and healthy young woman in her 20s, whose life was derailed by sepsis in 2020, but who has fought back since. She developed sepsis after getting food poisoning and became ill in 2020, when the UK was still under COVID restrictions. I just started my role at the GP surgery that I was working at a couple of months before I had sepsis. I'd just come out of a relationship as well, thought I was newly single and we were sort of in that weird limbo stage of not quite a full lockdown, but we're allowed to do a few things. So life wasn't exactly normal as such, but that was my normal at the time. I was originally diagnosed with food poisoning, so it wasn't straight away sepsis. Obviously, I had all the symptoms of food poisoning. I got admitted to A&E and it wasn't actually a few days into admission where I was on the ward that I was diagnosed with sepsis. Because it was food poisoning, I must have eaten something. And it wasn't until about five days later that I started to feel quite unwell. You know when your body doesn't quite feel right. Um, I usually don't sleep very well. I'm like tossing and turning, sweating. I started having headaches, like flu symptoms. So it was, it was headaches, shivering, uh, sweating as well at the same time. My body felt really fatigued, really tired. I also had diarrhea at the time and really bad stomach cramps. So my whole body was just hurting and not being right. But I think the part that was worrying me was the stomach cramps because that's not usually what you get when you've got the typical flu. But yeah, I had it, I had it all going on and my temperature was just getting worse. Everything was getting worse. Farah says it never entered her mind that she might become as poorly as she did. I had no idea I had food poisoning. So I called the doctor and the doctor did advise me to go to A&E. I think it was the stomach cramps that really raised their their attention. But then in my head, I thought I had the flu. And for some reason, I thought I knew better. And I thought, oh, my body's just going to fight this. And, you know, we was in a pandemic, so I didn't want to overcrowd A&E anymore. I just sort of thought I'd get better on my own. And I felt like I was being dramatic going to A&E for these flu symptoms. So we let another day go by and I got worse. And then I phoned the doctor or 111. I can't quite remember. It might have been 111. And the doctor did tell me, like, you should have gone the first time we told you. And I kind of knew he was going to say that. So I remember at home, I already had like a little bag packed because it's not my first hospital stay. Like, I kind of just got my toothbrush, my, my hairbrush and stuff like that. And I said to my dad, yeah, we should go to A&E now. 
it was all a very heightened emotional time as it was because around the time I must have eaten the bad food, my grandma, as we call her Orma in Germany, because my mum's German, um, she took really ill. So my mum and my sister flew out to Germany and the plan was that me and my dad would meet them there if things got really bad with our Orma. So half of our family wasn't there anyway. So it was just me and my dad. He took me to A&E and... I was just so emotional because I was in so much pain. Um, even getting into the car, like it, it was hard. And I think just everything got on top of me because mentally we're thinking about our family and Orma in Germany. And at the same time, I'm scared. Like I don't know why I'm like this, why I'm so unwell. Got to A&E and got to the front desk and the lady does the usual questions. And, so, and I just remember like just bursting out in tears because I was in so much pain. And I remember someone got me a wheelchair to like sit on and they put that machine on my finger. I think it's to measure like some sort of heart rate or something. And it was like really high. So we didn't wait at all. They got me in the wheelchair and we went straight into the resource section. I remember my dad had to park the car properly. So he went out and he met me in resource. So we got to resource. The nurse was absolutely lovely. I mean, throughout this whole thing, all the staff were absolutely amazing. She got me dressed into the, the scrub sort of thing. And they were just doing checks on me. I remember she put the cannula in my arm. I'm a bit of a squeamish, emotional, dramatic sort of person anyway. I don't like needles and stuff like that. So that really freaked me out. But if I'm honest, I was in so much pain as it was. It's all a bit of a blur. But yeah, she put the cannula in. They were doing blood tests because they were trying to figure out what exactly is wrong with me. I wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything. And I was, I just remember I was just shaking, like shivering. I was so cold. And then dad came back in. And yeah, we just didn't know what was going on at that point. They were just testing. And I must have been there for hours. And I remember it wasn't time for me to take another batch of paracetamol. But I was absolutely just, just begging for it because the paracetamol seemed to calm the shaking but then it would just get worse again so it was a temporary fix so I remember being there and eventually some doctors came out and they said we're going to have you stay at the hospital so I sort of said to dad like it's okay I'll be fine just like go home I've stayed in hospital once before a couple of years ago so I thought yeah just go home I'll be fine and then yeah it just sort of hit me I was by myself in recess and I was absolutely starving at that point. And I remember they gave me a plain like digestive biscuit and I had some of that and I just had to literally run to the ladies. Like it was that bad. It was like that instant. And then I got moved from recess and then that, that was the end of my recess sort of section. If I'm honest, like I was so in so much pain and it was all very blurry and traumatic. They've moved me into this space, I think because they were freeing up a award section for me it was it was beginning to get dark as well so they they wheeled me into this ward but I had my own separate room because they wasn't sure if I was infectious with something or not so I remember it was quite dark it was all like the the night doctors the night nurses was there I got put in this room with my own bathroom and I remember I was on my back and the doctor was examining me and I was just like crying in so much pain if I moved I, I'd be in, in such exaggerating pain. So I just tried to stay as still as possible. Where at the same time, I was still having really bad diarrhea. Like I've never had that bad diarrhea in my life. Like that is just completely not normal. It's just your, your body shouldn't be doing that. He kind of thought it was gastroenteritis at that point. 
it wasn't confirmed about anything else. So he done the checks, he asked me questions, and then hours later, I have no idea of a time scale, I got wheeled into my own room. So I wasn't actually on a ward because they still thought I was infectious. So I had my own room. It must have been a couple of days into where I was moved into my own private room. I'm sorry I can't give you time scales because it's just such a blur, the whole thing. I was there. It could have been one or two days after I had a CT scan. So they were doing checks and blood tests. And that's probably when, yeah, that's when they told me. I remember it was in the morning. So, and it was in between pandemic times as well. So my dad was allowed in there, but I wasn't really allowed anyone else. But they were really nice and they allowed my cousin to come in. My cousin, she's really close with us. And she was my next point of call, really because her parents were also away so there was limited people around limited people that could come in but those two were my were my rocks at that point. Farah says she remembers being told she had sepsis and not really understanding what that meant. It was in the morning where my dad hadn't he was still working he was at work all doctors would like come in and then they would tell me that I've got sepsis and I didn't really know what the hell that was I mean I've heard of that word didn't know what it meant didn't know what the symptoms were of that but everyone looked at me really concerned like really concerned so that panicked me more and it was when I messaged my dad and my cousin that they've told me I've got sepsis like their reactions really scared me because they obviously they know it was a kind of thing where my dad literally dropped everything at work and came straight away so that's what really shook me up because I didn't realise at the time that sepsis is obviously how lethal it is. I had sepsis of my bowel and my gallbladder in the end. And that's when they told me you had food poisoning and it was called compilovactor food poisoning, which had turned into sepsis of my bowel and my gall- gallbladder. Farah was in hospital for around a week and some of the treatment she had gave her some unpleasant side effects. I was on IV fluids, a lot of it. I think that's why my legs literally blew up twice the size. When I got into my private room in the hospital, I couldn't move. Like I was in so much pain. I couldn't even sit up. I couldn't brush my hair. My cousin was doing that for me. I just, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't wash myself. That's why I say that the staff were absolutely amazing because they literally nursed me. I've never been so bad like that. Like I was young, I still am young, fit, healthy, look after myself and I have no medical conditions either. And so it just goes to show that this can just literally happen out of the blue. And this time it was because I ate, I must have eaten something that wasn't right, that was contaminated with something because they said it was something to do with poultry So we did a food diary and sort of counted back and where it could have possibly been. But I mean, some people could have food poisoning and it doesn't turn into sepsis. But in my case, my body just went into overdrive, reacted really, really badly. My recovery was hard. Just a few days before I was discharged from hospital, I had to start getting moving again because my body was in bits. I'd It was a weird one because I'd lost quite a lot of weight, but I was so swollen at the same time. Um, I didn't really want to look in the mirror, um, so I didn't really see what I looked like. But I saw the size of my legs and it's quite scary because they're your legs, they're, they're your limbs. And to see your limbs change so much like that. So my dad, bless him, he started getting me walking around the hospital. At this point, I actually still had a catheter fitted in. I remember this. 
So they strapped the catheter to my leg. They got me out of bed and started taking my first steps again, which was really hard. But my dad, he was so resilient. He was he was there the whole time. He held my hand and making sure my, my catheter wasn't like slipping down my leg. And he was holding my gown as well. So I didn't like show anything, bless him. And he was like walking me up and down the ward a little bit. We had a little bit of a plan. We'll, do, we'll go a bit further each day. And then by the time I was discharged, still weak, but I could be on my feet. Farah's recovery continued after she left hospital. I was signed off originally for about a month off work. And in that time, I just went back to basics. And my dad, again, he was taking me on walks every couple of days just to build up my strength again. It was hard. Like at first, the first couple of weeks, I would walk for a short while and then I feel like I'm literally going to pass out. I started getting dizzy, all the symptoms like you're going to faint but kept going, kept trying. I went back to work after a month. And I, I remember people at the end of the day saying to me, like, you don't look right, you need you need to basically go home. I felt really unwell. My stomach wasn't very happy that day. It might have been the anxiety, it might have been still symptoms. Um, because I went through quite a lot of antibiotics. In hospital, we tried three different antibiotics, because the first one made me feel really sick. But I, I never actually vomited, but it was giving me nausea badly. And then the second one made me feel like I was hit like by a truck. I felt bad after that one. Then the third one worked. And then obviously I was um, given 10 days of antibiotics when I was discharged as well. So naturally your stomach is not used to that amount of antibiotics. It's being completely wiped out. So yeah, I think that's what contributed to my bad first day at work. So then I called up my GP and I was signed off again for a long amount of time. It must have been like another month or so where I just carried on trying to get fit again. When I say fit, I mean just literally walking, walking again, getting back to normal. And obviously mentally, it really affects you as well. So it's, it was mentally and physically just repairing myself, getting myself back together but it was nice at that time, my my mum and my sister flew back home from Germany so we could all be together as a family again, which was nice. It took me a long time to get 100% back to normal and then it wasn't until last year, 2021, I was developing really strong symptoms of IBS and that's when I went through my GP and my GP seems to think that the sepsis really triggered it. Because I had a few symptoms of IBS before sepsis, but it was nothing to go to the GP about. It was manageable, but this really was quite severe symptoms. So went for a dietitian. So yeah, I'm sort of left with IBS now, but I, I carry on living my life exactly like normal. Nothing has changed apart from my goals, my outlook in life and the IBS. Um, obviously, IBS, it, it affects you every day, but it's well managed. I've I've taken control of it and... Yeah, you end up learning a lot about food, really. But yeah, mentally to this day, I'm. It's it's challenging. Only until a couple of months ago, I realised I need I need some therapy for this. I need to talk to someone about what happened. Even though it was two years ago, you think you're okay. Time goes on, and then it might come out in in arguments with a family member or something. And then it doesn't hit you that really the underlying cause is you haven't dealt with that trauma, what happened to you in hospital. Farah says life has now changed for the better now that she's recovered from sepsis. Before I had sepsis, I've always been really respectful of myself. I do try and be a good person. I've got really good friends. So 
yeah, I was happy before, but sepsis, having sepsis, I remember the first thing I did when I was getting discharged was delete all social media because, I mean, I've got it back now, but <laughs> at the time I deleted it because I just thought it doesn't matter. Like all what matters in life is your health. If you don't have your health, then what's the point in having a really nice picture on Instagram or a certain amount of followers or any sort of materialistic thing, having that nice handbag or whatever? Like your health is number one priority and your happiness. So when I came out of hospital, I was just thinking health, happiness, the people that are around you, who, who you surround yourself with, love, who you love, who loves you, who respects you. So that really got highlighted for me. I knew that before, but it really was in the forefront of my brain when I came out of hospital. And I just thought, I'm not tolerating any rubbish in my life anymore or whatever comes my way. I'm very cutthroat now. I just don't tolerate a lot of rubbish, whether that's from people or work, any anything in life. I've just got in my head, life is too short. And I really value myself even more now. I really respect myself because I've been through a lot and it's been a journey. I've never always felt like this. After hospital, my self-esteem, my confidence was on the floor. I went through a really, really rough time with finding my confidence again and, and building myself back up mentally and physically. And I'm and I'm proud that I've got to this point now where, yeah, I just I just don't tolerate much rubbish. I, I value life a lot more. It's made me a little bit more spontaneous and outgoing um I wanted to do a skydive but my dad said no he's too terrified that something's going to happen to me but I'm but the old Farah before sepsis maybe wouldn't have done that I'm a bit more grabbing life I don't know what that saying is (laughs) actually I remember it now I'm not going to say it (laughs) I think it was 2021 I knew that I wanted to give back as part of my healing I knew that okay I've had sepsis, this, but there's something missing. Like I need to do something about this. There's no rewrite in the past, but I just thought I need to give back somehow. So that's when I sort of had the idea, but I wasn't in the right physical mental state that year. I wasn't ready, but this year I was ready. So I had a break from exercise for a very long time. When I was working at GP surgery, I remember slowly getting back into yoga. I don't think I, I ran until now the last couple of months this year I decided to give back and really go for this now. I thought about doing a walk, but I thought let's be, I wanted to be, do a bit more, like be a bit more adventurous with it because I wanted to do a skydive. So uh, yeah, dad said no to that. So I thought what's next that I can, I can do. So yeah, I chose to do Tough Mudder for charity and I've, I took up pole fitness about four or five months ago because I used to dance quite a lot back in the day and I was just really craving to get back into some sort of sport that I love. Um, but pole fitness seemed to be near me, it kept coming up. So I gave it a go and I absolutely love it now. So that's been really good for my core strength, building muscle, building confidence as well. And it's just something I really enjoy. And then we were looking into Tough Mudder. And so, yeah, in preparation for that, I've been, well, my friend who's, my best friend, Sophie, who's doing it with me, she's quite a runner. She, she runs half marathons. She's, she's brilliant at running. So, um, she got me doing the couch to 5k scheme to, cause I'm not really a runner. I mean, I used to run a little bit back in the day, but nothing like this. I used to find it quite boring actually. Um, but she got me doing that and it's basically this, um, scheme from the government. It can help anyone who's, who hasn't run before and it's interval running. So, and it's on like a nine week 
chart. So it's interval running, you'll run for a minute, you walk for a minute, and then it gets harder every week. Um, and now I'm running 5k on Tuesdays, 10k on Saturdays, training pole twice a week. And that's my preparation for Tough Mudder. And there's one message Farah wants you to hear. Don't ignore the symptoms. And don't think you know better than the doctors when they tell you to go to A&E. Sometimes I think back and I just think if I waited another day at home, like what would have happened would maybe, I mean, God knows what would have happened. But I know it's not good to think what if, but yeah, sometimes you, you do think, wow, that really bad thing did happen to me. It's a good job I did go into A&E when I did. Farah's experience highlights how sepsis can strike someone young and fit through something as seemingly innocuous as about a food poisoning. Like many of the sepsis survivors that we speak to, she's chosen to make something positive out of something deeply shocking. We really hope that listening to this Words of Sepsis podcast has helped increase your awareness of sepsis. Do check out all eight episodes in the series and share them as widely as you can, using them to start conversations with friends and family about sepsis. It could save a life, possibly even your own. If you've been affected by anything you've heard, or you'd like more information about the groundbreaking research into sepsis that the charity funds, please do visit our website, www.sepsisresearch.org.uk, where you can also make a donation. You'll be helping us to save lives today and fund research for tomorrow.